0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network.
1: You're listening to episode 281 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Well, listeners, I have a special treat for you today. Sean is back and he just shipped a very difficult and interesting feature that I'm going to get to ask him about. Welcome back, Sean.
0: I'm back. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. So, tell us what was the problem that you were trying to solve.
0: Yeah. So uh, we'll see how effectively I can describe it in words. But um, so a teeny bit of backstory from um, that's a, a tiny repeat off of the previous episode that I was on for. But so so we make software that um, large construction companies use. Uh, companies that build roads and bridges what they call horizontal construction so so we make uh, software that they use to plan execute and then uh, analyze and improve their operation and so so every day when a crew is going out to say pave a highway um you know the, the sort of crews you'll see out on the highway that block the road for the night they plan what the day will look like and, you know, it may be, OK, we're going to start at 8 p.m. and then go for four hours at this rate of production and then have to take a break as we move equipment. And then we'll resume and go for three more hours at a slower rate or a faster rate or whatever. You get the idea. Mm-hmm. So they they plan out these segments. Imagine like a little like lines being drawn over time that describe how quickly things are going to go. And then we have, so our our software tracks how things go sort of minute by minute, you know, like what the actual production is as compared to what the plan was. And um, we have functionality uh, to uh, sort of capture incidents around production um, that happen, so that they can be uh, analyzed for their root cause and then remediated through action items. But as you can imagine, uh, uh, people are not that dependable in terms of generating incidents themselves. I mean, there are two types of folks that would, either the frontline managers that you know whose responsibility it was to build the road that night, who may be busy with other things, or maybe they'd rather not you know record every one of their mistakes along the way, or the managers who ideally would be reviewing the work every single, day and night to determine how things went against the plan. And then you know, providing feedback where there is a discrepancy and then you know, taking the process from there to continuously improve, but managers are managers and they're not always that dependable either. So um, the feature was to uh, automatically detect all of the incidents that happened where um, the actual production deviated from the plan by enough that it would matter for further sort of analysis um, uh, either if the production was over or under the plan and including multiple incidents in one shift that would each make sense given that you know the the sort of plan would be reset every time an incident happened you know so imagine you were going for an hour and then things broke down for an hour uh, now when you resume the plan is is as of um, you know, if you were an hour in, even though you're two hours in at that point. So so anyway, so so that's what the the feature did is to sort of automatically detect what uh, incidents happen and then generate those production incidents so that they can be analyzed. So imagine, you know, sort of automating what a perfect manager would do if they were actually reviewing the work every day.
1: Oh, that's so cool. So is the idea is that you're getting real time feedback throughout the job? or when the job's complete for the night, then you are prompting the user to say, this is what we detected happened.
0: It's a good question. So we, um, the first version of it is at the end of the job. Um, not that, I mean, I think I think that the, the question's really on the nose because the goal would be to detect as soon as possible. Um, the reason that we shipped, and I think this is sort of an interesting uh, choice that a programmer has to make. So the reason we shipped, um, uh, Uh, the feature where we would wait until the job was complete is to get around the problem of false positives due to latency and um, information around actual production right so because that but we don't we actually think that the right thing to do in that case is even if an incident apparently happened and you find out later that it was only because your visibility into reality was temporarily blocked for some reason that that's an incident of a different sort that's an administrative incident where you're like well maybe production wasn't affected but our ability to see production was affected and that has its own implications um but we didn't um you know we we decided to sort of ship before we had the you know that all thought through because it's probably an equal amount of work to think that through and uh and there's quite a bit of value that was sort of stored up in in solving the sort of incident detection at the end of the shift. So might as well ship it then.
1: I think it's such an interesting problem because you're building this so that managers have insight into the job and for the overall company to understand the incident so that they can be better and likely save money and retain employees and whatnot. But you're dealing with another user, as you noted, that is afraid of having their mistakes revealed. So. You know, what kind of considerations did you have to put into that as you were building the feature?
0: Well, it's a, I mean, let me split that into two parts. So I mean, I think the first part of the question is interesting and in that you you said that, you know, we build this for the manager. And that's not real. I mean, I kind of get the point there, but I don't know that I really see it that way. And that um, we we built the feature as if it was the manager is sort of how I'd put it. Um, in that, you know, in a perfect world, the so, so, you know, what companies are trying to get around is the fact that, you know, managers are, are really the same as the people they're managing, right, It sort of turtles all the way down. And, and um, what we want is a more dependable manager, that's really the issue here, right? I mean, the is, is if you think that, you know, managers job is to sort of set expectations, and then provide resources as needed, and then provide feedback on how actual um, performance was, and then, you know, eventually provide consequences based on um, how performance sort of trends over time against expectations. And, um, as most of us know, that have had managers, you know, managers themselves are pretty inconsistent. So, our objective is as much to sort of do the work of the manager, as it is to, you know, provide a tool for the manager. And I think it's both, you know, frankly, it's not one or the other. But um, I think that that distinction is really interesting. Like I, I always think about, you know, do we write software for, you know, is, is do we write software that people are using or do we write software that's using people, you know, to help it figure out what to do? And I think that that simple question on a feature really reveals a lot of, a lot of things. Um, but anyhow, to the sort of point of your question, which is, you know, what about the, the um, you know, what, what consideration did we give to the sort of, You know people effects of having you know big brother watching more carefully and i think it's i think it's a it's an interesting topic in that there there can be hard feelings between two people when one is managing the other and and the person being managed feels like you know there's inconsistency from the manager because they see you know a, a different manager providing a different set of standards or the same manager providing different standards to different people that they're managing also and in my experience, when you write software that's doing the management, um, it, it may be more um, consistently difficult, but at least it's more consistent. And you know, most people, when they're asked what they want, they just want a fair shake, right? They want to be treated the same way as everyone else and know what to expect. And software's pretty good at doing that, right? It's, it's, it's going to dependably do the same thing every time. And if there's a bug and someone objects, and then it's fixed, well, that that problem's not repeated in the future. So I think that once you kind of communicate that to everyone, which is, hey, we're just trying to to um, be consistent and you know, consistent both, you know, with you and then consistent across people, uh, and also be transparent, so you can see exactly the way that we're thinking about um how uh to to evaluate performance against expectations that that's kind of a good news story once you get past the change bit um at, at least i mean at least that's my overall experience i think individuals may feel differently but on average i think that's the case
1: no that makes a lot of sense and you know i'm also in the business of fairness as well you know we have event tickets that go on sale that are highly coveted we have to make them available on the website the phone and the box office all at once you know, we dealt with Hamilton last year and we have a lot of other shows that are coming up where people Mm. really want good seats. And to your point, we write software so that we can be fair because, you know, sometimes a really high quality seat is at a lower price and everybody wants that seat. And so in the end, we want to say that we gave everyone an equal opportunity. Our queuing software, what it does is before the tickets even go on sale, it randomizes everyone who's shown up before the tickets go on sale. Now some people get angry about that because they might get in line at midnight, but at eight fifty nine they get randomized and they might go to the back of the line. But we do that because we feel that that's how we're going to deliver the closest thing to fairness, and we're giving everyone really a fair shake.
0: Now, do, do you are are you explicit about all of that to the users so that they understand kind of you know the method behind the madness or? is is the method a bit more private you know maybe not confidential but just you know sort of shielded from the user and and uh, you hope that it's sort of the fairness is kind of felt in the outcomes
1: no that's actually such a good question so we went years without really saying that because we hadn't had a large scale on sale where basically all eyes were on us Mm. but when we knew hamilton was coming we knew that we had to be more explicit about it so not only Did we publish an FAQ page that was sent to all of our users ahead of time, but while they were sitting in queue, we actually had one person who was devoted to messaging those people so they understood why they were in a certain place in line. And really, if you were clever enough, you opened many different browser windows and tried to randomize yourself into a higher place, but you'd be surprised how many people didn't figure that and really did stand in line in a randomized position.
0: I think that's the tension, isn't it, you know, between if sort of if you reveal the algorithm in its fullness, then, you know, the most enterprising, you know, users or customers or, you know, subjects or whatever it is, you know, they may figure out the way to, you know, look relatively better without doing actually better um, or get better results to your example, um, you know, outcomes in, in terms of tickets. Um, than someone else, even though they were supposed to have an equal weight. But but I mean, the other side of it is that if you don't explicit, if you don't sort of make what's implicit explicit, then people will just invent all sorts of narratives and in, insert them in, in the void. And, you know, which is worse? Like, I th- I think that I tend to believe now that it's better to be explicit and incur the cost of, you know, sort of unfairness that comes from some people being a bit more you know, willing and able to exploit the nuances than others. But I, but I think it's a really interesting question and and an interesting trade-off to sort of figure out.
1: For sure. And going back to your feature, I think it's all about how you approach the users about what you're doing. So did you have to put some sort of twist on the naming? Like how did you approach your users? Did you roll it all out at once or are you actually beta testing it with a couple?
0: Um, Well, uh, well, it's sort of it, it depends on how you look at it, I guess. So, so we've had the production incident feature for quite a while now. That's the sort of manual, like the, the, the way to store that something happened. And we've had the job production planning for a long time and the various analytics around it for a while now, too. Um, what we didn't have, and so we've been sort of beta testing ourselves and, and with customers the sort of analytical approaches that take you from, here's a plan, here's the analysis of it. Now, what are the, you know, value adding incidents to record for, you know, follow up um, root cause analysis and remediation. So we've had that, you know, we, we've had this sort of workflow, but we didn't have the automation to, to actually bridge the two to say, okay, that was the plan. And here is the actual, now, you know, um, the software is going to make the judgment around what areas need further review to figure out if there's something to learn and something to change. Um, so so on the algorithm itself, we, we've kind of for probably about nine months been testing different you know, techniques and thresholds and approaches to uh, get the signal to noise ratio correct so that we're not creating too many incidents so, such that they all become meaningless. And we're also not missing any that could have really yielded some interesting insight and positive change. So that was sort of part one. And then um, that got us to say, two weeks ago. And at that point, um, sort I felt like we had a good enough understanding of uh, the problem to uh, do the sort of work of actually writing the algorithm, right? Like to say, okay, we you know we've seen every case that we can imagine now, how do we write a single algorithm that'll that'll cover all the cases at once? Um, and that took, you know, I don't know maybe a handful of days really Uh, it didn't take that long to write it and then um, from there we went back and tested it um, sort of admin only right like we had um, just admins could see the results of the detection algorithm and then just sort of manually said does that make sense or not and given that we um, use tdd in general and i use tdd in general it was a little bit different because it, it, TDD didn't quite work. I, it, it was a little bit too difficult to sort of generate a big set of test data that then for each we'd have an exact sort of output we expected. It was more like we'd know an error when we saw it. Um, so instead what we did is generated, I don't know, 15 or 20 real world scenarios that we could then run the algorithms again or against over and over again and then compare the output of the suggested incidents against the eye test of what would make sense to us as people um, that know the domain pretty well. And uh, anyways, so uh, we kind of had that corpus of test jobs to work against and then would run the algorithms again and again and just um, both tune the algorithm so it didn't make any mistakes and then tune the parameters of the default parameters of the algorithm so that um, uh, it was sensitive enough but not too sensitive and then once we had that, we said, okay, now the algorithms are right. Um, and now it's it's time to actually hook it all up together so that it makes, the, you know, the, the um, we have the settings to control whether or not the automatic incident creation happens on a given plan, given some context or for a given customer, given their preferences and the rest. And, you know, at that point, that's more sort of just typical software development. But But to your question about rolling it out, we um, actually reached out to a couple of uh, uh, our biggest customers yesterday when it was clear we were going to finish the beta version today and just asked them if, if they uh, if they wanted to be uh, you know have it released to them um, when we finished it sometime this week and and you know they were pretty enthusiastic about it so um, you know we included them you know we don't make software that's used by hundreds of thousands of people it's more like thousands of people intensive customers so in general we have a pretty tight relationship with almost every i'd say with every customer user that that is using our software and you know we don't work with all of their users but um you know it's it's a small enough customer base that we can uh, kind of provide a pretty one-on-one experience about deciding how to actually uh, manage the beta process
1: this episode of the 5x5 ruby on rails podcast is sponsored by heffler and co a good font is one of the best ways to make your project stand apart. At typography.com, you'll find the work of Heffler & Co, creators of stylish and high-performance typefaces. Their fonts are used by organizations like NPR, cultural institutions like the Guggenheim Museum, and by the people we love, like the Office of Barack and Michelle Obama. And now you can use their fonts, too. H&Co's well-curated library and one-stop licensing options make choosing the right fonts simple, so that you can spend less time looking for fonts and more time using them. H&Co has been designing typefaces for over 30 years and knows how to help designers avoid the pitfalls of using a less-than-perfect font. At typography.com, you'll find lots of options, all of them good. Every font family is built to the same high standard and is designed to have everything you need and nothing you don't. You'll find fonts that have well-thought-out families with great language support and even the most obscure characters, plus tons of tips, tricks, and inspiration to help you get the most out of type. Whether you're designing a website, an app, or an entire identity, H&Co makes it easy to choose the perfect typeface from their library of over 1,500 fonts, including classics like Gotham and Knockout, and new favorites like Isotope and Operator. The Ruby on Rails own logo uses their Whitney and Archer fonts. You can try the whole Heffler & Co font library right in the browser at typography.com. And now for a limited time, as a Ruby on Rails listener, you'll receive 10% off your next purchase from H&Co. Use code RUBY. R-U-B-Y for your discounted checkout. Thank you Hefler & Co. for sponsoring the show. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, we talked about this in episode 272. And so listeners, you can go back and listen uh, to hear more about Sean's business, which I definitely recommend. But what I find so interesting about this is that the technical implementation was probably not that difficult, but it was the algorithm that you probably spent the most amount of time on, which is yours. I mean, no one else has that algorithm, and it's probably what makes you really valuable.
0: Yeah, I think that that's, I think that there's some truth in that. Um, Yeah, I mean, the algorithm is interesting in that. In the end, um, as with most algorithms, it's not that much code, really. Um, It was figuring out, I I found the process of ping-ponging back and forth between imagining all the things that could happen. Right, so just just imagining the sort of shape of a planned production curve and then an actual production curve, and you know, just to be real about it, like so, a job could start late, but then go really fast, faster than expected, and then level off, and that's one shape where it could start on time and go, you know, as expected for a while, and then drift, or it could start on time and then have a big gap and then go ahead of schedule. You know, all all, all sort of all manner of of uh, shapes of actual versus expectation. And um, so I found it pretty fun to imagine what all those could be, and then sort of imagine uh, an algorithm that could that could handle overproduction and underproduction cases sort of equally well that could account for the fact that, you know a prior incident on the same job changes your expectations for the time after the first incident and and you could have a mix of overproduction and underproduction incidents in the same job and so sort of doing the bookkeeping to figure out where you are against plan at any given time to sort of you know do that offsetting correctly and calculate the net impact correctly just that that process of imagining things and then using that corpus of real examples to test against and then that helps your imagination to then you know, go in new directions, um, I found found that to be pretty exciting. And I think you're right that there's, you know, having that nuanced of an understanding of things is is probably what's valuable. That's probably true.
1: So as you mentioned, you're looking at thousands of customers. What are your plans to make sure that this new feature is working correctly? I'm sure it's gonna be a bit more manual at first, but what are you, is your overall plan?
0: Yeah. Well, that makes me think I should think of a plan to do that. <laughs> uh, I, uh, you know, I, I think that um, it, so every day, there are maybe 50 jobs that complete, maybe more than that, maybe 60 that complete that, that would be subject to this algorithm, and it goes up over time, but it's, you know, under 100 right now. And so we work with customers, we'll just look at every single one of them, which sounds like a ridiculous answer
1: not at all i think that's how you get to know your users
0: i have this rule um that that i um, apply to sort of problems like this which is that i know the vast majority of the names of nba players at any given time Hmm. right so i could you know for the 30 nba teams could name probably 10 players per team you know if i saw them and anything that is fewer like uh, instances to look at than there are players in the NBA, I always just say, look at the individual, you know, like, don't, don't, don't treat it like a shotgun approach, just rifle shot, you know, like look at the individual instances, because if I, you know, through a dumb hobby that I shouldn't care too much about, always know every NBA player's name and could spot them from a photo, then it probably makes sense to sort of treat, you know, in this case, job production plans that individually, like just get to know them. You know each week and um you know uh, most insight comes from either zooming way into the details or way out at the macro and there's relatively little insight in my experience that comes from sort of like gazing sort of in the mid horizon you know so so i guess my answer is that you know we 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 had this sort of theoretical take in the first place, where we we zoom out and look at the entire macro horizon and imagine everything that could possibly happen. And now it's time to zoom in close at the individual details to see what we can learn in the particulars. And you know, wh- when that feels like it's getting mm, exhausted, like we've learned everything we can learn, then we'll zoom back out, you know, back to see if we can, you know, sort of widen the aperture even more to then connect this with broader topics like efficiency.
1: That makes sense so i'd actually like to dig a little bit into the technical implementation so when a job is finished is it an active record callback that is going through the algorithm to determine whether or not there was an inconsistency like how does that work
0: oh yeah sure so it's it's a it's a good question so we actually have i mean it's not technically a state machine but we we basically have um the job production plans uh, go through um transitions that are sort of managed by something like a state machine so literally there's a class called a job production plan completion class and when the status changes of a plan from approved to complete i think that that's the only you know valid um transition allowed um of that sort so you know words, the only way you can get to complete is from approved Um, when it goes through that transition after um the status has been changed to complete we kick off an async job in the sort of an after perform hook on um that transition and, and actually to take a step back so we have a, a sort of a generic class called um, an action model and any of these uh transition you know state transition or status transition um Services that exist all inherit from this this class called uh, um, an action model, and they they all represent sort of a state change, like a state machine state change of a of of a class, and then you can hook into the sort of life cycle of the status change before the status is changed, after the status is changed, before it's validated. You get the idea. Um, so we ha- so there's a job production plan completion um class which is a subclass of an action model that then implements the after perform hook and in the after perform hook which only happens if this this state change was successfully completed in that hook we uh, schedule an async job that does the detection and creation
1: okay and so should there be an inconsistency what is the experience for the users are they receiving an email are they supposed to fill something out? Like how is this being automated so that way it's getting recorded?
0: Yeah, so so they're already, and, and I think this is kind of a fun topic. So we already had a, a pretty full-featured capability around incidents. So we've had for, I don't know, maybe six months or something, the ability to create production incidents and then track their entire life cycle, you know, with comments and, yeah, you know, root cause analysis and action items and the whole the enchilada, really. Um, but w- so we are we already had that, and what we're doing is creating those incidents just automatically. So when the production incident gets created, yeah, there's a notification that goes out to the assignee, and then there can be team members that are on the production incident, and those team members get notified, and you know yada yada. There's a whole bunch of stuff that 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 enables. Um, but the, the, the thing that I found very fun about this feature is that you know we had that whole infrastructure to piggyback on that already works nicely, and you know we we it, the, the the trick was well can we automate the usage itself, you know because a lot of a lot of times you hear companies software companies or just um, software departments and non-software companies talk about adoption, and I always think about adoption in two ways one which is like can we get uh, can we build features that are you know, more useful to people and educate them about those features and make them more usable, et cetera? But, but there's a whole separate topic around adoption, which is, can we write software to use our software?
1: This episode of the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast is also sponsored by Indeed Prime. Are you ready to put your Rails experience to use in a job you'll love? Indeed Prime is a confidential free service that puts you in front of leading brands and tech startups with roles you're interested in. They find out what's important to you and match you with your dream job. All it takes is one free application to connect to thousands of companies in over 90 cities. Companies like Twilio, Overstock, Sling, WP Engine, PayPal, and VRBO. Skip endless resumes and get matched to employers based on your skills, experience, and your salary goals. You even get access to one-on-one technical career coaching that includes resume reviews, mock interviews, and salary negotiation tips. So whether you're hiring or looking, meet your match on Indeed Prime. Join now by going to IndeedPrime.com slash Ruby on Rails. Thank you to Indeed Prime for sponsoring the show. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like a, a microservice within your monolith. You know. Yeah. I, Nothing's worse than spending a ton of time writing a feature, getting excited about it, and no one uses it. When you know in your heart, based on the data, that the feature should be used and should be like a big part of the user's journey.
0: Yeah, so my my answer in that kind of situation is always to say, well, why don't we write software that uses our software? Um, and again, that that comes from that that upstream question, which is, wait, are we building software that people use or are we building software that uses people? And, you know, in the in this case, the production incident detector is sort of seeing what a person could see, creating the incident, and then the using people bit is saying, hey, I don't know what you know, so you take it from here, but I got it this far. And the I got it this far is pretty darn far into the process. And I think that, when you take a step back and look at um, you know the 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 goal not to be just make tools that like people will discretionarily use, but rather to see the user as the the company because when we make business software, right? So you know the the user is the company itself. that that's who you know we're making the software for, actually. And the extent to which we can automate the usage so that people have to do less, that's good for our customers, not bad. And um, I've, I've just been surprised over the years that that's not a more common way to look at the problem.
1: No, that's completely fair. So, you know, really to sum up the feature, what is the absolute end goal from your side as to why you built this feature? Are you doing this because you feel that you're delivering more value to your users making them stickier perhaps or do you want to be able to point your finger at your software and say hey we had data of these jobs and in the incidents prior we implemented this feature and now look what's happened
0: mm. well I, I um for better and worse i always you know decide uh, that we'll make features based on what i think actually like creates value like what actually solves the problem and um you know my my belief on how you build roads you know more effectively over time but this applies to all sorts of processes just about any processes you know that uh, it's about four steps it's about um, effectively planning and that you know planning is the most important of, of the four so uh, imagining uh, w- or researching and understanding what's possible and then imagining what you're going uh, to do against that possibility and setting a plan accordingly so that's step one step two is that you execute that plan um, to the best of your ability step three is that you uh, um, check to see how you did against what you expected and then step four is that you make changes you know either to uh, change what you thought was possible or uh, change you know your uh, ability to plan based on what's possible or change your ability to execute based on what you planned and so um the, the vision for the feature is to help with it, it, to do two things. One is to help pay off the planning work that happened so that after you execute, we can um, figure out where we uh, can learn something from what happened. In other words, where did execution go exactly according to plan, and where did it deviate at a low level so that um, we can then remediate that deviation into a change that affects future plans. So two examples would be, let's say uh, for half of a night, you ended up being able to um, pave at you know 65% above what you thought you could from a rate of production standpoint. So you thought you could go at 175 tons an hour and you actually go 65% above that. So that is something you want to highlight. Say, hey, those three hours where you went at 65% above the rate that you expected, there's something to learn here, and that's something to learn. Either is that, wait, could could we have gone at that speed the whole time? In which case, we need to you know increase the resources that go into um, into production and to take advantage of it. Um, uh, or um, did something change? Was the, did we plan for some average, even though the production was split into two, in which case we'd wanna like, use fewer trucks in the, the front end and then increase the trucks on the latter end. But I mean, anytime there's a deviation, there's something to change about the way that we plan or the way that we execute. And to answer your question, the vision is to to have the software help bridge the gap between execution and analysis and continuous improvement because in general people are way too busy kind of just in the daily grind of things to zoom out and say hey you know what can we learn from yesterday and how can we put in place um, you know little project plans little action items so that uh, our future is better because of the the you know deviations we experience and um, you yeah, so that that's that's what we're trying to get done
1: that's awesome. I, you know, I can't wait to follow up with you to hear how it goes. I'm I'm sure it's going to go great. Um, thank you so much for coming onto the show to to talk about this. I definitely think that I and the listeners alike will be a bit more thoughtful about our feature implementation and how it's going to affect our users. So thank you so much, Sean. Thanks, Brittany.